You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to the uh, the very first edition of Radio MMT. MMT. Yes. <laughs> For those who might have been uh, tuning in uh, and expecting unemployed workers fight back, yes, it's still Anne and Kev, but we are rebadged as Radio MMT, and this is the first episode as such. So uh, welcome. Welcome, whether you're Larry or Larissa or somewhere in between. <laughs> Aren't they still with us? Do you reckon they might have dropped off now that we've changed the signature? Same bat time, yeah. same bat channel. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking about the rebadging of, of Radio MMT and, and what that means, etc. And we've spoken with Bill Mitchell, who's uh, right behind this show, and he mentioned you know, the, the term polycrisis, which we're going to go into at some stage. But, well, certainly for me, mm. I'm beginning to feel the urgency of the situation that we find ourselves in more than ever. Uh, we do all these things to try and change the world, and it feels like we're tinkering at the edges. And that's the complaint with a lot of people about the Uluru Statement uh, is that it's tinkering at the edges, that it's not enough. And we feel the same thing about um, climate change and inequality and all these things. Mm. And I think it's, it's like when you go to the, the supermarket and you're doing your shopping and you've got 50 bucks in your pocket and you realise that you're stacking up your trolley a bit too much and things aren't going to work out. Mm-hmm. And, and you get this impending feeling that um, you need to make some changes, otherwise things are going to go awry at the checkout. Mm. And I'm beginning to feel that You're pressure. You're seeing the clouds on the horizon. Yeah, it's it's kind of like we need to do more. And I think with this whole rebadging of our show, etc., mm-hmm. my mission statement to myself is... <laughs> We need to get a bit more urgent about this. It, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And one thing that does give me hope is that we could spin on a dime here in reshaping the economy because just think of what happens when there's a world war and how a whole economy gets reshaped within a decade. Yeah, if we if we saw the crisis, you know. Hmm. And, and, and many people do. They just don't understand what to do about it and they don't understand that our, our current leadership is still not using the economics that's going to help that spin to happen. But it's very possible. Yeah. Well, I did just want to remind you uh, as you're listening that Kev and I are not economists. So I think we should say that up front, although we do have a show about economics and we do talk to the economists. Uh, We mightn't be economists, but I regard us as translators. We take what they say and we turn it into lay speak. And most people that I've spoken to, and I know a lot of 
pretty conservative Orthodox people. And, mm. and I've just been away on a, on a boys' weekend, which is a, a group of friends of mine. Uh-huh. And a lot of them are accountants and, and quite conservative and the rest of it. And they listen. Mm. You, if you get them the whole weekend, mm-hmm. they, they listen and they come across. So it's not impossible. Yeah, so that's the aim of the game. And to celebrate our very first episode of Radio MMT, in the upcoming hour, we will be sharing a conversation we had recently with the economist and founder of MMT, Professor Bill Mitchell. Bill is offering to give us some regular commentary on upcoming shows, which will give us an update on his thinking and on what's going on in the economy. So that's something to look forward to. But in the meantime, that interview. As Kev and I will often be mentioning in the future, the MMT in our newly minted radio show, Radio MMT, refers to modern monetary theory, which is a school of economic thought that we use to look at how our economy works. Yep. So it is an absolute thrill for us to welcome to our very first Radio MMT episode, economist Professor Bill Mitchell who is one of the founders of MMT. Welcome to Radio MMT, Bill. Well, thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Anne. Now, full disclosure, one of the many projects that you have going, apart from being the director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle, and also professor in global political economy at the University of Helsinki in Finland, is that you lead an organisation called MMT Ed, which people can find at mmted.org. And MMT Ed supports the ability of Kevin and I to do this show. Uh, yes. And so by the time we air this conversation, I do believe MMT Ed will be well into its third, is it, online course that is free and available to the public? Well, it's its fourth time, actually. Can people still join about 10 days in or would you suggest they wait for the next one? They can join at any time. Uh, It's about a few hours a week work, so if you're really diligent, you can catch up. Obviously, it runs 24-7, which means that it's self-paced. So you can do it any time, and instead of binging on some Netflix video, you could binge on uh, MMT MOOC. That's what I keep telling Kevin, that, that economics is so much fun on a Friday night. Well, I think so. It's pretty much fun every night. <laughs> and the other thing I'd say for listeners who may well have done it in the past is that this edition of the course, there's new material in week four, and that's to cover the latest inflationary period and how we're dealing with that relatively rare and new to most of us phenomenon. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that you can explain to us in layman terms, why should the general public pay attention to MMT economics and not the orthodox economics? Economics is one of those things that we let slip in our life because uh, it seems to be opaque and uh, difficult to understand and and so we don't take much notice of it and we accept what we're told on finance reports each evening and in the paper and from our politicians. But the problem is that every single day of our lives, uh, economics and particularly macroeconomics is affecting our well-being and our ability to navigate our lives 
our working lives, our family budgets, our, you know, buying houses, if that's still possible, renting, all the things we do, all the transactions we make, our job prospects, all of that is is really the realm of economics. And, you know, obviously I'm biased because I'm an economist, but I've always been astounded that it's such a central part of everything we we are and do and want to be and have been, yet we know so little about it. Mm. So I think economic literacy is as important as any form of literacy. So what I would argue, and it's pretty obvious to most people, even if they don't quite understand why or how, is that the mainstream approach to economics, which is bellowed out every day in the mainstream media and which political choices are made all the time, have really led us astray. Mm -hmm. That's a, a set of ideas and theories that are really biased towards reinforcing the well-being of a very small number of people in our society and always willing to compromise the well-being of, of almost all of us. And it's effectively a part of an ideological structure to uh, reinforce what I would call power relations in, in, in our society, to make sure the wealthy and powerful stay that way and get even more so, and the rest of us shut up and uh, do what we've got to do to keep them wealthy. And uh, for some of the time it, it lets us be and lets us have small increases in our own wealth and uh, wage increases. But if if it ever threatens their position in society, then they come down on us. So that's putting it in sort of political terms. Whereas MMT, in my view, is a much better way of understanding how the actual system operates and provides us with a much better understanding of what the policy scope and capacities of our governments that issue the money are and a much better way of appreciating what the consequences of using those capacities are. And once we get that understanding, we suddenly realise that there's a whole lot of things that governments tell us that are not true, a whole lot of policy choices that they make that are unnecessary and damaging, and a whole lot of policy choices that they reject or don't even conceive that are beneficial to the natural environment, to societal well-being. And I think that's why a program like this is essential to help people make that journey, both in terms of understanding why they need to start learning this stuff and actually helping them learn it and see the context for it. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Bill was talking about the importance of macroeconomics. So just to remind ourselves that macroeconomics is the study of the economy as a system, and that's usually at the national or the global level. And that's as distinct from microeconomics which is where you look at parts of the economy. So you might look at a specific industry like airlines and 
things like working from home might be a microeconomic issue. So a microeconomic policy would be something like uh, negative gearing on uh, property investments. Exactly. Um, and then the macroeconomic situation is what that does to house prices and how that makes uh, housing available or unavailable to the mm-hmm. rest of us. Yeah. So you and I will be focusing on the macro. Yeah. See, Bill seems to have left us with a bit of a paradox here because on the one hand he's saying that economics is in all of our lives. Every day we're dealing with economics. But on the other hand, we know so little about it. Right. So one reason that it's so sort of obscure is because it's a system, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. If you're looking at all these little individual transactions, like, you know, negative gearing, you won't see what the total effect is on the whole system unless you're taking a systems view. And... One of my favourite examples of that was looked at by the great economist John Maynard Keynes. Keynes, who gave his name to Keynesian economics, and of course post-Keynesian economics is what MMT also expands on. John Maynard Keynes noticed that there was this paradox of thrift, is what he called it. So you would think that at the individual level it would make sense for people to save like most people think oh it's a good idea to have a bit of a stockpile of money for a rainy day but the thing is if everybody does that if all the businesses and all the households and all the individuals were saving their money they would actually cause a recession or a depression so you're hoarding away your money means you're not spending it yeah mm-hmm. and so if you're not spending it that means businesses aren't doing so well right and then businesses not doing so well they'll shrink and if they're shrinking they're laying off people laying off people more- their suppliers aren't supplying as much so everybody playing it safe Mm -hmm. And that's called the paradox of thrift. The paradox of thrift. So that's one reason why it's hard in your day-to-day life to see what your actions are doing in the big picture of the macro economy. And another thing I was thinking about is how the institutions that are supposed to have this big picture, and they're the ones managing the Australian economy, like the Treasury and like the Central Bank, is that they seem so remote and so far away, you sort of don't really know what's going on with them. And we think that that's, that's how they prefer to stay. I mean, people who are benefiting from greed also like there to be ignorance because mm. if there's ignorance, Suits them their, pretty well. their greed can go unchecked. Yeah. Uh-huh. So if you have any sense of social justice or inequality, that's where you're going to move from like pure economics into political economy. Or as Bill was saying, you know, these power relations. It's sort of almost impossible to, to not look at them once you understand your MMT. Yeah, once you, once you understand them. And, and that's the thing which becomes more and more apparent is if you want to have a look at any of these dynamics, the orthodox explanations uh, are usually opaque, confusing. They just sort of go, oh, that's just the way it is. In fact, it was uh, Maggie Thatcher who, when bringing in uh, the policies of Milton Friedman, used the excuse, Tina, there is no alternative, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say... This is the only thing we can do is run austerity measures and have a uh, an economy run by the private sector where business rules and it will find its natural, 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 in inverted mm-hmm. commas, balanced, etc. It's like uh, saying nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> correct, correct. There is no alternative. Actually, there's, there are heaps of alternatives. And, uh-huh. and one thing that's become apparent is that course, as with so much we find out about in our economy, what we're told by the orthodox is usually the complete opposite to how it actually should run. I'll just cast your mind back to an article that you wrote that was published in the Australian Economic Review 
back in 2020 when governments all over the world were suddenly spending a whole lot more of their currencies than they usually do. And back in 2020, you said that we are now at a turning point in macroeconomics. And I'm just wondering, a few years later, do you see that we have made a change or do you see the old ideology reasserting itself? Yeah, that's a good question. And to some extent, I, I was wrong. Mm. Um, but in another way, I, I think that I was correct. So let me just explain that. Economist Professor Bill Mitchell. I was wrong because in the sense that when we think of turning points, we think of rapid change typically. And uh, what we know is that uh, dominant theories in, in academic life which infiltrate into the policy space, even if they're wrong and they're shown to be wrong by facts, they hang on and resist change and for very obvious reasons. There's a lot of senior professors who have made their careers based upon things that ultimately are shown to be wrong. They've got a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And there's a whole cadre of junior academics, you know, their promotion, their publication, their getting research money are all dependent upon them being validated by the senior academics, even though they are more inquiring. And so what I'm saying here is that what we call paradigms in the academic life, in other words, mainstream approaches, they resist change to the nth degree. And uh, so when I talk about turning points, I should have qualified that by saying that this could be a long haul, Mm -hmm. and it will be. And so what that leads to, among the profession, the economics profession, the 2020 episodes with the pandemic and even the global financial crisis 10 years earlier, that's they see that as a blip rather than a fundamental reason for them to make their shift. But in the sense that I was right, I think that the ordinary person who's not an economist has started to realise that uh, a lot of what they've been told in the past isn't true. And you see that in social media and you see that in uh, questions to the editors in our newspapers they start asking questions. How come you can spend billions uh, bombing the hell out of people on the border of Ukraine and Russia? Where does that money come from? And uh, just recently even, you're starting to see uh, economic commentators on the ABC in Australia or in the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age writing articles or or op-eds, opinion pieces, which are starting to question the orthodoxy. And there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald from Ross Giddings, for example, who's as orthodox as they come, suggesting that the whole mainstream platform that uh, the RBA is using to increase interest rates is completely wrong and not fit for purpose and is no longer valid. Mm. So you're starting to see at that level of commentary a recognition that we really are, are in a period of change and it's just a question of how long that change takes. Um, when people talk about change, they often want radical and immediate change. 
and uh, we've had a period of neoliberalism, which is like a, an ocean liner heading in the wrong direction, a little bit off course year after year incrementally. And here we are 40 years into neoliberalism, way off course to what a lot of people would regard as a, a balance in society. Uh, you started your economics in the 70s. Uh, MMT became a thing during the 90s. And I think I remember you saying that uh, back in those days, you could have counted MMT as in the world on one hand. How do you feel the progress of MMT is coming along, given that we've entered a neoliberal age at the same time as you were coming out of your economics course at Melbourne University? Well, it wasn't just at Melbourne University. I studied at several universities. But uh, what I what I say to people who are younger than I am, that paradigms and orthodoxies do collapse and change. I've witnessed that. I grew up in a period of an economic thought process called Keynesian economics. And, th- and that really became apparent after the Second World War in the construction in the peace, that our federal governments and national governments assumed massive responsibilities to get our societies back on track after the destruction of the Second World War, which had followed immediately the Great Depression. And so I grew up in that era. And then in the mid-70s, 1974, there was massive uh, chaos with oil crisis, with oil price rises, the formation of the OPEC oil cartel, which started to control prices. And uh, in 1973, it used that power to make political statements about uh, Israeli behaviour in the Arab world. And oil prices went up around the world. So that ultimately led to the beginnings of an entrenchment of neoliberalism. So there's a paradigm shift that I've lived through. And what I think we're now seeing is, again, a a paradigm shift. If you study philosophy of science, what you glean from that study is that paradigms shift very slowly because of that resistance I mentioned earlier. So it took us, you know, 40 years almost for psychiatry to understand neurogenesis, that if a brain was injured, it could heal itself. Prior to that, the theory was if your brain was injured, it could never heal itself. It was permanently damaged. I grew up with that understanding. (laughs) Yeah, and clinical practice was all geared to the fact that you were permanently damaged, but that understanding was uh, wrong. And the empirical evidence was mounting, which created a dissonance between the theoretical approach and the actual observed reality. Mm. And in the late 90s, uh, the profession changed. The cognitive dissonance became so great and the older academics had retired or died and the younger academics were freer to take on new ideas and that led to the change. But that's 35 years that people were being treated incorrectly. Then think of economics. Well, economic policy, in my view, has been mistreating people for years and years under neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. But as Kevin said, year by year, the chaos and dysfunction of neoliberalism is compounding. I call it now a polycrisis. You know, for, for years we've had little crises and haven't necessarily linked them all together. Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, had a housing crisis and a public transport crisis and a, a water crisis and all these crises, which we've treated separately. 
but in actual fact they're all part of the one story. I did notice that um, back in January the media was reporting that polycrisis was a buzzword at the 53rd Annual World Economic Forum in Davos. I was wondering what this framing is giving us versus just saying we've got multiple crises going on. I wrote about that the year before last, in fact. But uh, what it means is that so often in uh, communities, say in the Newcastle community where I live mostly at the moment, you have all these community groups with their own special interests. Like in Newcastle, it was Save the Rail. They ripped up the rail line to sell the land off to developers. Save the fig trees, uh, and that was another community movement. Uh, save Civic Park, save the bluff headland, all these individual little save this, save that. And each of these little community groups that sort of eke out their identity by, by saving something never spoke to each other and, uh, as a consequence, didn't have solidarity in mass. And it's the same sort of analogy to a polycrisis. We've got all these individual crises and lots of little lobby groups and community groups all thinking about housing or water or public transport or whether bike paths should be installed here, there or everywhere. Mm -hmm. And often those groups speak, you know, in a parallel way rather than together. And mm. once we understand what neoliberalism is, that it's creating all of these crises, mm the focus of attention should A, be solidarity mm -hmm. and B, should be on the cause and that is it's the system in general, not an individual little dysfunction here, there or one little council making a decision or state government making a decision. It's, it's the whole system needs to change mm. and that system is reinforced by an economic orthodoxy, mainstream economics that is without authority and is plain wrong. So we should learn to gain a much better understanding of economics so that we can question our politicians and force system change. Hello, I'm Philip Lorne. I'm adjunct professor at Torrens University and you're listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev on 3CR Community Radio. From where I'm sitting, and I'd like your reflection on this, uh, we had an election in 2013 where Tony Abbott was talking about debt and deficit and the disaster for our children. It was a real reinforcement of austerity and orthodox economics. That conversation isn't being had anymore. Those headlines have all gone. Is there some progress in the way that we're thinking about an economy? Because a lot of the things that were front and centre 10 years ago seem to have evaporated. Is that, is that a, an indication of change? Well, I'm not even sure that that's true, Kevin. If you think back to the most recent election, federal election, you had the opposition treasury spokesman, who's now our treasurer, raving on about a trillion dollars of debt. Uh, my job is to paint the true picture uh, of the economy and our economic challenges. Treasurer Jim Chalmers, speaking at a press conference on the 18th of July, 2022. Uh, when it comes to the trillion dollars of debt that we inherited from our predecessors, that is becoming more and more expensive for us to accommodate. 
that's just the reality. And when he became treasurer, he kept using the phrase, heaving with trillion dollars of debt. <laughs> Our ability to respond to these challenges is constrained by the fact that the budget is absolutely heaving uh, with Liberal debt. We're heaving with a trillion dollars of debt and what he was using was that scare idea about public debt, which the average person has no concept of other than it sounds like their own mortgage and it's reinforced that way. And he was using that to discourage us from thinking that they would be unpopular if they started uh, running austerity, which they're currently doing. Uh, but we take our fiscal constraints seriously. A uh, trillion dollars in debt costing more and more to service uh, means that we have to be upfront with people. We can't do everything that we would like to do. We can't even afford uh, the good ideas that people put to us. That's just the reality. I think there's a difference in emphasis now. And I mean, Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey were pretty crude practitioners of the scaremongering. And maybe uh, the current Labor government is more sophisticated in the way they scaremonger. That's questionable. But I still think that these uh, orthodox fictions that I call them, they're fictions, I still think they're in the toolbox and I still think that they bring them out in various ways when it's convenient to manipulate public thinking using those fictions that we we can't see through. Yeah, you mentioned before the emphasis. It just seems we've got a much higher debt in inverted commas uh, uh, than we had in 2013, but nobody seems to care that much anymore. They go, yeah, yeah, the debt. I'm sort of getting this general kind of um, vibe that the population is not scared by debt and deficit anywhere near as much as they used to be. Well, I think that goes back to what I said about the turning point in relation to Anne's question about whether we have actually turned the corner. And I think that uh, in many ways we have because the scare tactics have been relatively constant except when pragmatism had to rule. During the early days of the pandemic, we threw almost everything out of the window. But... In the intervening period, a lot of the predictions haven't come true and people, they definitely don't understand why, but they, they, don't, they don't see the sky falling in. And so the, the dissonance that occurs between the statements of these economists and politicians and the facts that we observe in our daily lives is creating that sort of uh, shift in the way we think about these things now. What I hope we can then do is build on that dissonance and create an understanding of, well, why hasn't the sky fallen in? You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us.
3CR needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. It was very interesting listening mm. to Bill. The impression I get from that is that we've got all these spot fires. It's like these spot fires all, all taken off here and there, you know. Mm-hmm. But the spot fire is coming from the from the hot north winds of neoliberalism, you know, and it's throwing all these sparks. <laughs> Someone's got some gasoline they're throwing around. Yeah, and it's, and and if they all join together, this thing might get uncontrollable. And our mm. job is to put out the spot what fires. An image. And, yeah. Uh-huh. So that's, yeah. Although Bill did say that there is some movement, there is some change, and he was mentioning the ABC. And I found an example of this, Kevin, which I just have to read out. Uh, There was an article by Ian Verenda, who is the ABC's business editor on the ABC News site, and his article was headlined, Why the Reserve Bank is Pushing Us Towards a Recession We Don't Need to Have. Now, that'll resonate with Australians who will remember uh, Paul Keating (laughs) telling us the recession we had to have. And, of course, MMT would tell us that we really don't have to have any recessions and there are ways of not doing that. But I'll just read out the first couple of paragraphs from Ian because I wish I'd written them. And he says, What if you woke up one morning only to be told the very essence of everything you believed in was wrong? And what if those beliefs and the decisions you made based upon them underpinned the living standards of millions of people here and around the world? That's the reality dawning on a generation of economists who suddenly have been beset with doubts about one of the great tenets of modern economic theory, the relationship between jobs, wages and inflation. So that gives you a sense of the shift and of the turning. But I would say that Ian's casting is a net a little bit narrowly because we don't need to throw out just this idea of what's the relationship between jobs and inflation, which of course is expressed as the Nehru, the non-accelerating inflation inflation rate of of unemployment. unemployment. They need to actually throw the whole lot of mainstream economics out, just feed it all to the worms. You know, uh, I was listening to an interview with Alan Kohler last night uh, on Triple R. And, and I love listening to Alan Cole. He's got a very soothing voice for starters, but he's also a very clear thinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was saying uh, that the Reserve Bank is now adopting a strategy of basically shooting from the hip. Uh, and this goes into something what you're saying is you can't believe anything you hear. Mm. So we had Phil Lowe saying a little while ago that the interest rates were going to be locked in at 0.1% for the next three years. And people bought houses on that basis. The strategy they employ now is to make statements that will change behaviour right now Mm -hmm. and not take responsibility for them. So you can't believe their predictions. And so he said that to create a a behaviour to stimulate the economy and people bought houses and it stimulated the economy. He's now saying that there's going to be another two rate rises. That doesn't mean there's going to be another two rate rises. What he's doing is probably the opposite. He's saying that so that people will 
restrain spending. And then maybe if the spending is restrained, he won't have to increase interest rates. Yeah, I'd like to talk to some of the economists sometime about how the RBA and those other economists are seeing this thing called expectations, which is what you're talking about. Expectation management and it's a manipulation. On future shows, we will be talking about some of the very bad ideas that they're running with. And um, if you hang out for our outro, you'll hear some of those ideas. But let's swing back to our conversation with Bill. When you are the federal treasurer and you opine about the economy, everyone has to sit up and pay attention. And so Jim Chalmers did publish an essay in the monthly titled Capitalism After the Crises. And in that, he talked about a new values-based capitalism. And he did, further down the line, I'll just mention, Kevin, that he said, the federal budget is deep in debt and under pressure, so the options for large, broad, new programs are limited. (laughs) Oh, man. Which, to me, are the mental shackles that um, Bill's talking about. And, Bill, I'd contrast this with something that you were saying in your Helsinki lecture, which is uh, available to the public and on your YouTube channel, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But in that lecture, you were saying some things which I think won't make you many friends (laughs) in the Labor Party, which was that a system that prioritises private profit cannot deliver the changes we need to survive. And my guess is that a name for such a system would be capitalism. And you even said that capitalism has reached its end date. So how are you able to assert that in the face of what our federal treasurer is saying? Did I say end date or end news by date? Uh, News by date is different to end date. Yep. Look, I've I've been around for a long time now and, you know, I now believe this polycrisis is unresolvable within the status quo. Mm. So that puts me at odds with a lot of the sort of Green New Deal and a a lot of the progressive community. And I'm thinking here in terms of uh, those who want to reform the European Union and uh, those who want to reform the food industry they they always start softly in the sense that they think you can do things by just a sequence of reforms of the existing system. You could almost see the current debate in Australia about the voice in that frame as well, by the way. Mm. The tension there is about reform or fundamental shift. But my view of progressively over time as I've learnt more and understood more, and that's one of the advantages of getting older, mm-hmm. is that uh, the root cause of all of this is the the dynamic of our system is maintenance of power. Maintenance of power to make profits and to work out ways in which uh, the income that an economy produces can be distributed to a small number at the expense of the rest. Mm. If you analyse all of the elements of the polycrisis and the, the dynamics of it, you come back to the view that that's the fundamental problem, that uh, we have to change the way we make decision-making and allocate resources 
away from a priority of making private profit towards a priority of uh, advancing community welfare and global earth welfare. Mm. An example of that is uh, I reject all market-based approaches to climate change, Mm -hmm. uh, which think that you can just jig the price of carbon and uh, that'll make everything change. Well, no, it won't because, you know, we're already having big debates about these carbon offset systems, which Four Corners recently has demonstrated categorically are just corrupt and meaningless and they're just ways in which we can keep polluting in the first world and then pretend to be doing carbon offsets in the poorer countries, which really are just devastating local cultures and local sustainability in those poor countries, while we devastate the air we breathe in and the waterways and the productive land and forests of the first world countries. So, you know, that's a market solution. Mm. And, And markets aren't free and they aren't independent adjudicators of what we want. They're manipulations of uh, the powerful and the profit seekers. Mm. So, you know, I think my view is that uh, a value-based capitalism is just a smokescreen. And it's like all of these trends over the last 30 years in corporations to have social uh, charters and all these corporations putting all this stuff up on their websites about how they're environmentally friendly or they're looking after their workforce. You go and read Qantas's uh, website, you'd think that they love their their workers and the way they treat their workers is an absolute disgrace. So all of this sort of social responsibility stuff and values-based capitalism, that's just a misnomer. That's just a smokescreen mm. to continue doing what they want. And what they want is, in my view, not what we want. Well, I have to say this phrase, market-based solutions, has become a red flag for me. And in fact, there's another framework that's coming out of the Labor government, uh, which is this idea of the well-being framework. And I was wondering if you'd tracked any of that. I remember it was being introduced back at last year's October budget, and I haven't heard a whole lot since. Although Chalmers did say something that I do agree with, which is that what we measure directs our action. So I was wondering if you've heard anything on the grapevine about the wellbeing budget or if you see any kind of optimism there. No, look, I think that's just uh, just buzzwords and jargon to differentiate themselves from, you know, the previous government, what we had nearly 10 years of the previous government, it's now becoming apparent to everybody that they were sociopaths, Hmm. that they were mean-spirited, lying sociopaths. We see that in the RoboDeck Royal Commission. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, just to remind our lovely Larry and Larissa, in case you've forgotten what RoboDeck was, this was the scheme that illegally, we have found, clawed back almost $2 billion dollars in payments from around 433,000 past and current Social Security recipients. We will find you, we will track you down, and you will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison. Alan Tudge, then Robot Service... I mean, then Human Services Minister. There has been an overwhelming success in terms of the new debt recovery system. 
Christian Porter, then Social Services Minister, on ABC Background Briefing, March 2017. Monies are being identified and being paid back to the taxpayer, indeed 300 million so far, with a tiny complaint rate. So, tell me in a few words, what's the reason for your call? Debt recovery. Maybe a little differently. You can say things like information on childcare or my superannuation entitlements. So in a few words, what's the reason for your call? Debt recovery. We haven't been able to determine the reason for your inquiry. Thanks for calling the Department of Human Services. Goodbye. Wow. YouTube content creator, Scruffy Looking Nerf Herder, October 2017. The RoboDebt Royal Commission uh, demonstrates the depths of which Australians can go to uh, destroy the prosperity and happiness of other Australians. Mm. Australians who have power using that to destroy the lives of fellow Australians. Scott Morrison was the Social Services Minister in 2014 when the thing was developed. Yeah. He was the Treasurer in 2015 when the scheme was launched. And he was the Prime Minister in 2019 when the whole thing was found to be unlawful. Ah, oh boy. Of course, social welfare system, the social security system, is paid for by taxpayers. Scott Morrison, our former Prime Minister, giving evidence at the RoboDebt Royal Commission. The system needs to be fair to, to those who receive benefits as well as those who pay for them, the taxpayers. And that was a, a very strong view of our government. Changes to entitlements and programs can have serious implications for taxpayers. You're talking about in a financial sense. Of course, yeah. To ensure that billions of dollars um, were available to the government, either to give back to taxpayers, it's their money, uh, or uh, to provide to other services. A billion dollars overpaid every single year of taxpayers' money. $1 billion is an extraordinarily large amount of money. Um, you ensure integrity of a program to protect the program because you care about the people who most need that program. The non-coming forward with the advice is so disappointing. If I look back at the one critical point where the system didn't do what it needed to do to assist good decision making is where someone was aware of something that significant. It must be brought to the attention of the minister. I understand the point about why didn't you ask? I understand that. That's what it was the understanding at the time based on the understanding of the proposal at the time. Um, but as I understand it, DSS's understanding of the proposal changed since that document was written. We 
we're talking about a situation where there was advice and a very clear set of advice, I, I stress, once I've had the opportunity to see it, and how that did not get elevated and raised with ministers will remain a mystery, and I hope one that is, that is solved to ensure it doesn't happen again. Serious implications for taxpayers, those who pay for them, the taxpayers. The taxpayers' resources, taxpayers' resources, taxpayers' money being paid out in benefits, billions of dollars, to give back to taxpayers, it's their money, a billion dollars of taxpayers' money every year. So, you know, I mean, the Labor government needs to differentiate itself from that period of, uh, well, run, we were run by sociopaths, that's the point. <laughs> and I think all this value-based capitalism and well-being and all of that stuff is just to differentiate themselves in a cosmetic way. If they really were after well-being, they would uh, immediately stop uh, any gas-fire power stations and any use of any new coal. They would uh, shut down a whole lot of uh, sectors. They would uh, take over the gas production in Queensland. They would uh, regulate prices dramatically and stop price gouging. But they're not doing any of the things that are necessary at the moment. Mm. You know, one example of if they really cared about people, what they would be doing now is uh, doubling the unemployment benefit, the job seeker allowance. That's a very clear example of something they could do very quickly and simply. Well, they did it, the Liberals did it in the pandemic, and it improved a lot of the unemployed dramatically for that short period. So if they really cared about the most disadvantaged people, they could do that with a stroke of a pen. Now, they're resisting doing that. They've set up an inquiry. They won't answer questions. So that tells me they're not genuine. Mm. So I don't think they're genuinely committed to reforming capitalism in a way that will be effective. Well, Bill, we look forward to talking to you more about what the real solutions, the genuine solutions are, and what this smokescreen is that uh, we have to see through. So we hope to have you on the show a lot more in the future. Yeah, look, Anne and Kev, thanks very much. It's great work you're doing. I've had a, a long affection for 3CR growing up in Melbourne and understanding the role that 3CR plays in trying to give balance into the community understanding so well done and uh, i'll do whatever i can to help your program and uh, good on you thanks for your support bill very much appreciated thank you no worries take care you're listening to 3cr 855 am on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Listening to Bill there, mm. he was talking about being a bit kinder to people who are on unemployment benefits, raising the rates. And so that says to me that unemployment, it will still be at the heart of what we do here because managing employment is at the heart of macroeconomics. And if you want an economy that leaves no one behind so that everyone can have a decent standard of living. We measure a society by by the richest people. We go, if we've got really rich people in our society, oh, we're a really wealthy country because we've got these really wealthy people. Mm. You need to measure the wealth of your society by the poorest people in it, 
not right. the not the richest. Exactly. And if the people who are the most disadvantaged, if they're living a good life, you've got a good uh, good community. If if they're in the gutter, you've stuffed mm. up. But what do you call such an economy? And I felt like with that uh, conversation with Bill that I was going through a process of elimination. So it's like, are we going to call it values-based capitalism? No. Are we going to call it a well-being economy? No. <laughs> so the thing is, I think any kind of phrase or slogan that you use, it will be in danger of being co-opted. And Bill doesn't like the phrase Green New Deal either, which I don't mind that phrase actually. And now people are starting to talk about the regenerative economy and they talk about donut economics. How do you see through the labels to see if this is going to be what we need to make the big changes or not? And Bill gave us the clue. He talked about market-based solutions. So any kind of a program, I don't care what it's called, if it's focused on market-based solutions, that's your clue that it is not (laughs) going to be the program that you want. And sometimes they'll use that phrase and sometimes they'll use other things like they'll say the private sector will do this and that or the market will do this and that or we'll have a price on carbon or they'll talk about nature providing these services to us like oxygen. (laughs) What we need is not a a market-based solution. We need a community-based solution, you know, Mm. and I would love to be in a world where we can use the word socialism without people jumping up going, you're a red, Uh you know. Well, when you say socialism, I think that's what we're heading towards. We're looking at more government intervention, which means more central planning and more regulation, basically, which is very much the opposite of the neoliberal agenda. So how are we going? We've got to wrap up. Thank you so much to Larry and Larissa for joining us today. And you'll hear from us again at 5.30pm on Friday the 10th of March. And thank you very much, Bill Mitchell, for setting us off for our Mm -hmm. first show. Uh Catch you next time. See ya. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of like macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment and the money multiplier. You've got a pretty good singing voice. I play bass. <laughs> Bill, Bill, he plays guitar. I reckon we could form a macroeconomics band. Like, we could deliver this whole message by music. 
Well, we could call the band the permanent income hypothesis or the Ricardian equivalence or rational expectations. I think we're onto something here. We're trying to make macroeconomics more interesting to the masses. We're going to like form this band and sing it to them. And we're going we're to bring the economists in. We're going to get musical. We're going to do the regression theory of money to music. That will work. That's good. Regression <laughs> theory of money. What runs with regression? Regression, depression, instant. <laughs> there's, there's a world of opportunity here. This is the league. This is the league. No bills for the guitar. Like you'll be a straight line. Uh-huh. Have you ever sung before in a band? No, you, don't, you do not want to hear me sing, Kevin. <laughs> What's the next? <laughs> We'll get there, we'll get there. Okay.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.